It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hope you have a good, uh, big plans over the weekend. Uh, I know I do. I'll be on the road in uh, Lawrenceville today in Georgia uh, at the Books a Million. Please meet me out there for the exact address. Go to BrianKilmeade.com. Uh, if you're not in Georgia, I hope to meet you in Lexington, Kentucky on Saturday. Uh, and then on Sunday, we have some tickets left in West Virginia, Charleston, West Virginia. I'm going to drive from Lexington uh, to uh, I'm going to drive from Lexington over to Charleston, all about the president and freedom fighter, Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and the battle to save America's soul. In a time in which everybody is attacking our history, I think it's time to learn more about it. And then you have deep opinions and discussions about it. That's uh, a little bit later. I'm going to talk to Reed Gregory about his days at Notre Dame. He just graduated, already wrote a book, Martha McCallum's son. Uh, what a great story this walk-on is and what he learned from being a signal caller and playing at Notre Dame. Coming up now is John McWhorter, an associate professor of English and comparative literature at Columbia. He wrote a book, Woke Gross Racism, How a New Religion Has Betrayed Black America. You're going to love this interview. Here's John McWhorter. I thought they didn't teach critical race theory in school. They went to, like, law school or something. That's right. I sure hope not, because I'm not certain seven-year-olds need to learn it. I would like black kids to be completely empowered to know that they are beautiful in their blackness. Mm -hmm. But in order to do that, I don't have to make white kids feel bad for being white. So somehow, this is a conversation that has gone in the wrong direction. And she got a lot of backlash from that, and I do do not know why. That is the former Secretary of State, the first female black Secretary of State, uh, one of the smartest people in the country, uh, also the most practical. And I thought that she grew up in the South, and she's talking about somewhere, someone who said couldn't go to a movie theater until she was a certain age. Uh, buses. She grew up in the segregated South. No one gave her an easy life. She just happened to be unbelievably successful. Uh, John McCorder uh, is with us right now. He's an associate professor of English and comparative literature at Columbia University and author of a book you got to get. It's called Woke Racism, How a New Religion Has Betrayed Black America. John, great to talk to you. Thanks for having me, Brian. So what prompted you? I know you've been talking about this. What made you feel as though you should write a book about this? Well, it's just gotten to the point since about June 2020 with the racial reckoning that we've been having since the murder, and I do think it was a murder of George Floyd, where a certain kind of person is saying that what the racial reckoning means is that we're going to teach white Americans that their natural state should be one of guilt about racism past and present. And we're going to teach black people that our role is to cheerlead as white people settle into this and to think of ourselves as eternally victims of white racism, with that being the most interesting thing about us. And that if you don't agree with that agenda, it's not that you don't agree, but that you're some kind of moral pervert who wants to deny that racism or slavery ever happened. And I think that's wrong. I think that what happens is that the people who say this are clearly wrong to most of us, but they scare you because if you don't agree with them, they call you a racist on social media. And so I'm seeing a great many very educated, kind, well-intentioned people standing around pretending to agree with this kind of misguided zealotry, and it's becoming just what smart people in America are supposed to do. I won't have it, 
And I figure if it takes a black person to, to say it and have somebody halfway listen, then I'm going to write a book as a duty to make it clear that there are different ways of addressing racism in this country than this kind of kabuki play acting with people with pitchforks basically hurting people, running around making people cry in the name of this prosecutorial ideology, which – this is the crucial thing – isn't necessary to black success. There are other ways of making it so black America can succeed. This new fashion is not it. How do you feel about what Condoleezza Rice said on The View a couple of weeks ago? She's dead right, and the problem with people's reception of it is that there is a movement in the educational establishment for children of taking ideas derived from critical race theory, such as you know white people on top, black people on the bottom, watch out, guilt, etc. That sort of thing is being taught in public schools and an awful lot of private schools. It's very much in the news. A lot of people turn their head away from this and think that someone like me is just talking about some little tempest in a teapot. Now, it's true that legal theory from 1981, the original critical race theory papers, are not being taught in schools, but that's not what we mean anymore. We mean the basic underpinnings of the ideology. And Condoleezza Rice is not crazy to refer to that. I'm not crazy to gather the news stories and the countless anecdotes I have from schools in practically every state of this country saying that that sort of thing is influencing the way things are being taught. But the thing is, if you call that out, many people think it means you're not battling racism, so you're supposed to pretend that it isn't happening. But it is, and I don't want my children affected by it, and I don't want this country's intellectual culture to be based on that one thing. It's not just that one thing isn't true, that you know there was slavery, there was racism, and there's still some now. But for that to be the main thing that an education is about instead of teaching people to think, I say no. I, as a black person, do not need that transformation on the behalf of black people who need help, and neither do they. So a lot of people listen and say, well, what's the downside of maybe tilting the playing field more towards uh, blacks as opposed to the whites had it too good for too long anyway? If we overcorrected, we overcorrected. So what? Well, the thing is, we were already doing that. I wouldn't say that we were overcorrecting it, but the idea that America has stood by over the past 50 years and pretended that the past hadn't happened is utter and complete fiction. There's a way of talking about this that literally sounds as if the person is writing from the vantage point of 1960 instead of 2021. There's been plenty of acknowledgement. There's been plenty of affirmative action. There have been plenty of scholarships. There have been plenty of black people in very high places. There's been plenty of black people completely penetrating the entire American media. All of these are wonderful things, but they are acknowledgement. And so the playing field has been tilted, just affirmative action. I get the feeling people under about 40 aren't sure what an exotic thing that was when it happened in the 60s. That isn't something that had really happened anywhere else on Earth. So when it's done right, it's a very wise policy. That's tilting the playing field. Now, how much do you want to tilt it? Do you want to tilt it so much that a white man has a hard time getting any kind of plumb position because the idea that everything has to be given to black people regardless of qualifications or with qualifications placed way in the background? Once again, that's a case. I'd like to hear it laid out, but the people who are in favor of this don't lay it out. They just say words like equity and intersectionality and racial reckoning and figure that they've made the case, and everybody's afraid of them because if you say that they're not right, you get called a racist on Twitter. That won't do. I think that the way we were handling these things from roughly the late 60s until about last night made sense. It's this new thing that is extremist and unnecessary and cruel 
which I think somebody needs to stand up and say something about. Not that I'm the only one, but I want to be one of the people who is standing and saying, this, this doesn't work. This isn't wisdom. Uh, talking to Professor McCorder, who wrote Woke Racism, how religion has betrayed, uh, how a new religion has betrayed a black, black America. Overall, uh, Professor, as you look at what's happening in this country, people look back in the 60s and said, well-intended, but while helping out with these social programs, you helped destroy the black family unintentionally. How do you feel about that? Well, it's true to an extent, and I hate to say it because there are people who say it who I'm not allied with. I am not a hard right person. I've never come from that particular direction. I don't believe that race is something we need to completely get over. I'm not from that. Nevertheless, welfare was expanded in the late 60s, and that was another way that the playing field was tilted. The idea was to help poor black women by teaching black women to sign up for welfare benefits when ordinarily they wouldn't have. And that did two things. It did mean that fewer black people lived in abject poverty. That's true. Instead, the people who lived in abject poverty were just poor. But then on the other hand, it did mean that fatherlessness, not growing up with your dad, became instead of one way that you might grow up poor and black, which it always had been, became a norm in a great many black communities. That norm that you know, it was hard to even imagine having not existed by the 80s is something that began in the late 60s. And so, yes, you need to have welfare, but it was overdone, and it did destroy a lot of black communities. And the thing is, you can hear that said by plenty of people who lived in those communities and who live in them now, including pastors and ministers. This is not just some think tank talking point. It's just not something that people want to talk about in the intelligentsia. But the intelligentsia is just one sliver of society, and very few of them are the ones suffering from the effects of racism the way other people are. So how do you mm-hmm. process people who say, you know, I keep reading about Frederick Douglass and uh, Booker T. Washington and the slave culture, and there was four million in America. Uh, man, this, this country, uh, this is not right, and uh, I'm angry about all that. What do you do with that anger? Yeah, your anger should be placed in things that are affecting you and other people right here in the present, with the idea being that what you do about the anger is that you change things in a way that creates real change. If the anger is about shaking your fist at white racism and especially aiming it at the past as if the past can see you or hear you, all of that is great, but it's theater. We're encouraged to think that being on the side of black people involves a certain kind of performance. And what people really need to think about is to walk around today, especially if you're a middle-class or affluent black person, and those two types of black people are by no means rare today. It's common to be a middle-class black person. In fact, you could argue it's the norm. If you're a middle-class black person, you walk around saying that because of, say, microaggressions, you are living in a racist country that shapes your entire psychology and you've got your fist stuck up in the air. You're, You're dishonoring your ancestors. You're dishonoring probably your grandparents who went through the real thing. And what's interesting, and nobody ever quite has an answer to this, as often as not, your grandparents didn't walk around with the attitude that you did. The idea was to make the best of things, to be constructive. You know that there's injustice, and sometimes it's even you who's suffering it, especially if it's 1955. And 
you try to make the best of it and you make concrete solutions. It's today that you walk around angry and often police people's language and cheer when people get fired for saying something like reverse discrimination or something like that. Something's gone wrong, and it's because people in 1955 searched for real solutions to real problems, and they eventually found them, and that's how the 60s happened. Today, we're trying to continue the struggle, but the problems are more abstract, and yet we're encouraged to be just as angry as the people were back before and to call what we're dealing with racism as if 1955 is still here, when what we're really dealing with is legacies and complexities and subtleties. I don't see it happening, and I want to get us back to it. After the break, more with Mr. McWhorter. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. It's Brian Kilmeade. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. John McCorder is our guest, associate professor of English. He wrote the book Woke Racism, How a New Religion Has Portrayed Black America. So in Virginia, when we see what's happening now, when these parents are saying, I don't want my kid coming home saying I'm inherently racist or bad or an oppressor, and they're saying it as far as third or fourth grade, are they on to something? Yes. It's something that's happening all over the country, and I'm not somebody who's looking for an issue. I'm not trying to rally a certain kind of person by my side. It's something that I started seeing mushrooming after the summer of 2020 with this racial reckoning. It's more extreme in some places than others. The most colorful examples you see are in private schools because they have more room to turn the whole curriculum upside down. But it's also happening to an extent in public schools. It's absolutely permeating the philosophy that's given to people in schools of education. And and anybody who doesn't know that may be pardoned for not you know, following that sort of thing with their eyes on the news pages, but it's painfully evident. And we're really insulting a lot of parents and saying that any parent who has a kid who comes home talking about that stuff and then complains about it publicly is really some kind of bigot who wishes that in school nothing was taught about slavery and racism as if everybody were back in the time of the little rascals. That's just not true. I know too many Democratic, liberal, even leftist and white parents, people my age, people a generation younger, who tell me I can't believe this stuff that my kids are picking up in school. And these are not peculiar people, and a lot of them send their kids to public schools. This is real, and anybody who says that it isn't, frankly, has a certain agenda, and that agenda is often that you have to talk about racism above um, and beyond anything else. Sometimes, though, that's not what's going on because in a way – Subverting an education to teaching this kind of ideology is racist, too, and making black people into objects and teaching black people to think of themselves as less powerful than we are. So these are discussions that we need to be had, and it cannot be shut down by simply crying racism whenever a certain kind of overeducated person doesn't like the cut of someone's jib. That's not the way to have a society. Nice. I would love the way you said that. So in terms of overall, this is what you also have. You're, you're dealing with race. I get it. But it's not just with race. Everyone's dealing with wokeism, whether it's Dave Chappelle, who's got to see if he still has a career. We all know he does. We see Bill Maher as left as a a liberal spokesperson for 25 years, now saying he's upset from what he sees, as has to do with the pandemic on down. Joe Rogan, the most powerful podcaster in the country, said this. You can never be woke enough. That's the problem. It keeps going. It keeps going further and further and further down the line. And if you get to the point where you capitulate, where you agree to all these demands— it'll eventually get to straight white men are not allowed to talk. Right. Because it's your privilege to express yourself when other people of color have been silenced throughout history. We just got to be nice to each other, man. And there's a lot of people that are taking advantage 
of this weirdness in our culture, and then that becomes their thing. Their thing is calling people out for their privilege, calling people out for their position. You know, it's uh, crazy times. Yeah. I, I think he nailed it, right? I mean, I have nothing to add, and a lot of people would say, well, Joe Rogan you know, makes his living doing this podcast. He's painting in broad strokes. No, everything he said was absolutely true. There's a certain kind of person who, with the best of intentions, and they're often very nice people, as I say in the book, with the best of intentions, what they really are seeking is for white men, and especially straight white men, to shut up. They would be quite happy if a white man decided, I have no right to express my opinion about any of these matters at all, and I will give people of color anything they ask for. That is the goal, and I'm not exaggerating either. And I think all of us know that despite the hideousness of America's past and even grimy things that happen now, that that solution is something out of some communist playbook, out of some Martian playbook, out of some education school circa 1975 playbook that has nothing to do with how a mature society should operate, whatever the nature of the past was. And even if the people who suffered most were descendants of African slaves, we all know that that doesn't make sense. And my book is about how we need to stand up. And the idea is not to try to chase these people out of the room, they should be in the room giving us their perspectives, but not standing up and yelling. They can't be the ones who call all the shots. We need those people to go back to where they were two years ago, which is they were one of many people at the table making suggestions in edgy fashion, but not running the show by calling us racists on Twitter with everybody then bowing down and pretending to agree. And, and I think that now that we're coming out of the pandemic, we're beginning to realize something has gone wrong, and I hope my book is caught the moment. Uh, no, I think you absolutely have, because there's things that you say that nobody else can. And and the way you go at it and the way you could surround an argument while attacking the issues that are in the news. I'm trying to tackle that on a daily basis. Tell me if you if you could buy this analogy. I think the American people just want a level playing field. Plow the field. Let me compete. But don't fix the outcome. Don't give me a two goal lead or a two goal deficit. Just let me compete. Yes. Anybody who really likes themselves would be fine with that. And I would add very briefly something else. The playing field might not be absolutely perfectly level. In no place in human history has it ever been. Leveler, sure, but yeah, don't fix the game. No self-respecting person wants that to be the condition. Unless you're watching WWE, in which in point you act surprised every time the outcome's scripted. <laughs> uh, listen, congratulations on the book. It's going to be great. It's going to be a runaway hit. I look forward to talking to you about it. Uh, and I've listened to you before. I listened with Megan Kelly's podcast. Always interesting and insightful. Uh, John McWhorter, go pick up his book, Woke Racism, How a New Religion Has Betrayed black people the fastest three hours in radio you're with brian kilmeade hey welcome back everyone it's the brian kilmeade show uh, i hope you're enjoying it so far so i had a chance over the last two years and two months uh to research and write the president of freedom fighter uh, abraham lincoln frederick douglas in the battle to save america's soul it's been out there you see me talking about it i hope you saw the special but one thing i wanted to do is to give people an idea of what the book's about before they read it, it always was better for me i always love things based on a movie or based on the book or that so that's why i thought it would be great to air something like this a little package about five minutes long that talks about the lives of two, these two remarkable way, uh, men who came from nowhere self-made men and led us in the most important time period Later, we'll think about who could lead us out of this today, who's actually out and about today. But here's a look at the President and Freedom Fighter, uh, the package, five minutes long, and you can always get it at BrianKillMe.com. Let's listen. The American Civil War. Over 600,000 would die over the course of four years. 
for the United States to survive, then reunify, and become for the first time a nation free for all, they would need extraordinary leaders. Two emerged above the rest, Abraham Lincoln, the president, Frederick Douglass, the freedom fighter. Together, they would make America a more perfect union. America has been blessed to have the right people at the right time. I mean, think back to those days in the Civil War where brothers literally fought blood brothers. Fathers fought their kids because they wanted the Declaration of Independence and this notion that all men were created equal to be real. In Abraham Lincoln, you had a person with the odds stacked against him. Bill, how can a young man born to illiterate parents in abject poverty with only one year of formal education emerge as one of America's perhaps best presidents who would lead us through a war and emancipate all enslaved people. Well, he was an amazing person. I guess today we'd call him gifted. Uh, he had a vision, he had ambition. As tough as Abraham Lincoln's first 14 years were, Frederick Douglass had it a whole lot worse. He was born a slave. He had to escape to establish his freedom, but he wasn't satisfied with that. He would want freedom for himself and freedom for all. Once free from bondage, Douglass would relentlessly continue his self-education, be mentored by esteemed abolitionists, write a best-selling biography, start a newspaper, and be a lecturer known around the world. As flawed as America was for the African-American, he didn't want another country. He wanted to make his stand here, it, almost in biblical terms. He saw the promise of America, which is hard to do when you're being beaten. So Douglas's gift was he never let the slave owners own him. In the 1850s, as Douglas and Lincoln began to rise in stature, miles apart, America was coming apart. The North and South were diverging on the issue of slavery. The status quo would not stand, paving the way for the emergence of a new party, the Republican Party, seizing the opportunity of one-term congressman, lawyer from the Midwest, Abraham Lincoln. The rail splitter from Illinois would grab the nomination and presidency, but by the time he arrived at the White House, seven states had left the union. For Lincoln, secession was not an option. The war was on. He took over a divided country. Did he actually know what he was getting into? I don't think so, but Lincoln knew the law and he knew the Constitution about backwards and forward. And so he realized when after Fort Sumner happened and that a lot of the country wasn't accepting him as president, I mean, he correctly diagnosed union, 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 keep the country together, and then the abolition of slavery as the two grand causes of the Civil War. As for Frederick Douglass, Lincoln's win was all about hope. But when he didn't immediately free the slaves and messaged appeasement in exchange for reunification, Frederick seethed. The whole story is that progress takes patience. Douglas should have been, rightfully so, angry at the lack of progress, pushing Lincoln to move as quickly as possible. But at the same time, you have to admire and respect Lincoln's patience. The White House looks a lot like it did back in 1860 when Abraham Lincoln was president. You could line up on that porch and hope the president would see you one-on-one. -on -one. That's exactly what Frederick Douglass decided to do. He wouldn't have to wait long. Lincoln was smitten with Douglass. He knew that he was a, a prophetic figure. He knew that he carried some baggage with him politically, but he wanted to meet Douglass. After the initial meeting, a bond was formed. Lincoln released the Emancipation Proclamation. Douglass traveled the nation, recruiting blacks into the army for the first time. The most prolific unit 
the 54th Massachusetts Infantry. One of the beauties of that recruitment effort included his own two sons who served in the 54th. I was amazed at how important the American flag was when they were being shot at. The African-American holding the flag doesn't want it to touch the soil because it was so important to defend our flag because it was defending our nation. Lincoln and Douglas would meet a total of three times face to face and together they would help Lincoln win re-election. Douglas would be a special guest at his inaugural. The Union would go on to win the war, free an entire race from slavery and allow our nation to reunite. With so much work left to do together, John Wilkes Booth's assassination, Rob Frederick Douglass of a partner to do that work with, and America of its greatest president at a time of our greatest need. Frederick Douglass would outlive Abraham Lincoln by 30 years, staying here in Rochester, New York, until 1872. His major mark on American history came alongside our 16th president. Individually, they were great men. Together, they were unstoppable. So I hope you I hope you like the book. You have to just understand this. No one will ever justify our, our past in slavery, but just know we didn't have the market cornered on slavery. It was not the colonist's idea. I got this great idea. Let's take uh, let's take a whole group of people and, and make them work for us for free and treat them horribly and break up their families. It was happening on every continent on the planet. We had estimated 350,000 slave owners, about 7 million there. About 200,000 fought in the North for their freedom after being emancipated, and they fought with such gallantry. I think that began to do tremendous uh, things in terms of erasing racism in our country. Back then it was about freedom, then it was about equality, uh, and then we will hope to make it a racist-free society. That's our goal. But race remains in the news. That's why I thought that walk back, that look back, would only help you win the argument and win people over to understand how great this country is. Meanwhile, coming up next, a unique trip. I'm going to speak to Reed Gregory. He is one of the players, not a superstar at Notre Dame, but a standout player through high school, walked on, was able to get some time, but also become a key member of Notre Dame on and off the field. What it was like not to be a star in a pandemic year to go ahead and beat Clemson and make the playoffs and not be a star. What do you get out of sports if you don't do that? You get a lot, especially if you read Gregory and you have the headsets on calling the defensive plays, hearing everything they're saying, hearing how they coach, and also getting the player's perspective because you're one of them. He wrote a book right out of college along with his, uh, one of his uh, buddies, and he's actually the son of Martha McCallum. So uh, what an exceptional human being. You'll hear from him as he talks about his brand new book, only on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Change is even coming here for the Fighting Irish. They're still working out the exact number, but they know for sure it won't be 80,000 fans. If there is an infection on campus, what will you do? Our contact tracing team will kick in to identify those who might have been in close contact with that person. We have isolation and quarantine space. That's just a little of what went on. Remember, the pandemic hit every single person listening to us right now. And we thought, wow, this got real when the Dallas Maverick game was stopped and the NBA went on hold. Everything else followed. It was a matter of days. College football, too, I believe, was one of the first to come back, and Notre Dame, the first team to make it possible. That was Marianne Corr, Notre Dame's health, Notre Dame's health subcommittee chair. In the beginning, like everybody else, we didn't think this was going to be that big a deal. We heard about these other viruses. They never really affect us. Obviously, we're still dealing with now. 
That is something from his perspective that Reed Gregory, John Mahoney, put in perspective in a book they wrote after completing their senior year at Notre Dame. The name of the book is History Through the Headsets, Inside Notre Dame's Playoff Run During the Craziest Season in College Football History, Mostly Done Without Fans. Uh, Reed Gregory, John Mah- uh, Reed Gregory, welcome back. Or welcome to, I should say, uh, the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me on. Hey, uh, Reed, in full disclosure, you're, uh, you're one of Martha McCallum's favorite sons. Is that correct? <laughs> one of, yes. Yes. So, so you went through this season at Notre Dame. You walked on and did almost the impossible. You played four years of college football at the, at the most storied school in football history. What made you want to try first off? Um, well, I loved playing uh, football in high school. It was one of my favorite sports. Uh, I had some offers from some other smaller schools, but Notre Dame was always my dream school. It's where I wanted to go. Um, and uh, obviously, it's in, in the football world, it's, it's the top university to play at, in, in my opinion, and in many others' opinion. And uh, so I worked hard and trained and uh, eventually made the team with, with some help from many other people. Um, and I'm, you know, so thankful that I made the team and, and I wouldn't change it for anything. Uh, and you did, you did get to play a little bit and you also were calling the defensive signals, right? Yes. I got to play in a few games on uh, special teams and, um, I was the defensive signaler. I got that job my junior year. Uh, so basically the defensive coordinator was up in the box and he would, um, call in the plays to me and my co-writer, John Mahoney. Um, and we would hear him on the headsets and signal them, signal the plays into the, def- the defenders on the field. You write in your book that you thought your senior year of high school football was it. And, you know, John Mahoney knew, like, he was emotional at the end of his college career. You were more emotional at the end of your high school career. You thought it was over, but you made the team and had this incredible memory. What made you think to yourself, I got to put this down? I mean, here you are, 23, 24 years old, and you already have a book out, and you're in the real world, not wearing eye black anymore. What made you say, I got to put this, I got to write this? So it's a funny story. Um, after Thanksgiving dinner, we had a team, a team dinner, and John and I were speaking with our, um, our, one of our coaches at the time. And he said, kind of jokingly, he said, you guys should write a book. You have such a unique perspective on the season as a whole. This season in particular was wild and crazy in many aspects. Um, and, uh, you know, we just had an interesting point of view. And we joked about it. And then later in practice, I think the next week after thinking about it, me and John were just like, hey, we, you know, that's something we could definitely do. Um, so we, you know, went to the, went to the bookstore, emailed all the publishers that we saw in the Notre Dame book section at the Notre Dame bookstore, uh, got some good responses and, uh, finally signed with Triumph Books, a sports writing company in Chicago. They've been extremely helpful and, um, we're very happy we did it because we can, now we can relive those memories whenever, whenever we would like. You know, if you're Tim Tebow, you know, if you're Herschel Walker, if you're Eddie Gregory, you know, who, you know, you star in, in college football. When, whenever you're done, everybody wants to do a book. But there's more people that aren't uh, outstanding Hall of Fame football, baseball, soccer players who have just as indelible experiences. And they think, well, I'm not going to tell that story. But what do you hope people get from your story, uh, from uh, Reed, not only you, but from John Mahoney? What's the perspective that you bring? Sure. So, um, like I said a little bit earlier, we wear the headsets on the sideline. And so we hear everything that the coaches are saying 
you know, all throughout the game. We know everything that's, that's going to happen before it actually gets played out on the field. Um, and so what we hope people get from this book is uh, how much really goes into winning a college football game and what it's like on the sideline during the game. And uh, we try to, you know, bring that uh, as much as we can to, to the readers of this book uh, because we didn't think it was ever really talked about, um, the sideline perspective. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's what we hope people get out of it. What did you get out of the experience? I learned a lot about uh, how people work together, how, how players can learn uh, from others, how, you know, they're effective coaches and less effective coaches. Um, and it's taught me a lot about, you know, uh, time management, work ethic, and uh, it's really shapes the way that I live my life now. So I'm, I'm very happy with, with my experience. So then you factor in COVID-19. In the beginning, you write, uh, read, that you guys didn't take it serious. No one did. You shouldn't be uh, mm-hmm. ashamed of that. No one did. So if, tell me when you first realized this virus was an issue and when it was first brought up to you. So it's funny. We were all on spring spring break when uh, the students got the email from our president, Father Jenkins, to not return to campus. And like you said, at the time, no one was wearing masks. None of us really thought it was a big deal. No one really knew what it was or understood it. Um, and then we got an email from our uh, from Coach Kelly, our head coach, and he said, "Well, the football players are actually going to be coming back. Uh, we're we're, uh, we're going to keep practicing through it all." And uh, we were kind of a little bit put off by it because we didn't want to be the only ones on campus for such a long time. Uh, but then the next day, we uh, got another email saying, "Hey, this is actually a very serious thing, um, and the football players are not going to come back either." Um, and from that point, we all had to do our own work from home. We had online meetings with our different position groups. We had to check in daily using multiple different apps. We had to weigh in. We had to send videos of our workouts. Um, it was, you know, it was, it was a very difficult way to to coach a football team when everyone is in their own respective states. Um, so it was a very unique experience, and COVID definitely threw us through for a loop. But we were, you know, successful in our in our strategy to to be able to have a, a, a college football season. And the discipline you guys had to show working out of your own, that when you got together to show the distancing and everything in order to mm-hmm. field the team and play, if Notre Dame doesn't go back, is there college football? In my opinion, no. I'm very happy that Father Jenkins and our, our athletics director, Jack Swarbrook, um, decided to to put out in public that Notre Dame will be playing college football. And because we were independent at the time, we needed to join a conference. So we joined the ACC, which um, helped um, helped us actually have a, a schedule. And I do believe that um, Father Jenkins and um, Jack Swarbrook releasing that statement gave other colleges the confidence to say, all right, we're going to play a season, you know, play a full college football season as well. The so highlight. I, believe Notre Dame is yeah, responsible I agree too. And the president definitely helped a lot too, by saying, come on guys, get back out there and then embarrass the, uh, the PAC 12 to play too. Uh, here's the moment that you write about in your book that you, you have a lot of indelible moments, but what about Notre Dame playing Clemson November 7th, 2020. Williams, the back next to book. Third and goal for Notre Dame. And Russ playing coverage. Book on the road. He throws end zone. And it is caught for the touchdown by Davis. And we are on top. 33 with 22 on the clock at Notre Dame Stadium. Andrew Williams, the blocking. The tight ends on that side. To the goal line and in. Tyron Williams for a Notre Dame touchdown. Second and goal for the Irish out of the timeout. Williams right to the right side. How 
powers to the end zone, and Kyron Williams scores again for Notre Dame. What did that mean to be Clemson? <laughs> I'm smiling over here on my side of the line. Uh, it meant so much to, to be Clemson, to be Clemson at home particularly. Um, you know, we had done so much uh, adjustments-wise through COVID and everything to get to that point, and it was really just a special moment. Um, it was a special game. We, everyone played extremely hard. We prepared so well for that game. Um, and then at the end of it, all of the students storming the field was uh, such an amazing feeling. Um, I found my brother somehow in the in the mosh pits of, of people, as well as my college roommates, and um, it was it's a feeling that I probably won't ever feel uh, anything like it again. But uh, it was it was truly something special. Uh, Reed Gregory, uh, along with John Mahoney, wrote the book History Through the Headsets Inside Notre Dame's Playoff Run During the Craziest Season in College Football History. I cannot believe you have a book written as you get your first job out of college. Congratulations on this, Reed. I know it's going to be a big success, as you will be uh, in the real world, where you don't get tackled or hit anymore. (laughs) Yep. Thanks so much, Brian. I appreciate it. You got it. Reed Gregory, thanks. Pick up his book, History Through the Headsets. It's fantastic. Brian Kilmeade Show. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for listening on this holiday weekend. As I hope your holidays are getting back to normal, unlike last year, with the oppressive rules from your medical professionals at the higher up, at the higher reaches of Washington, D.C., and again, I hope it's going back to normal. I hope you realize that your life's full of a little bit of risk. Just be smart about it. Underlying conditions, take note. If you're older, take note. But if you're young and you're strong and you keep yourself fit and you're eating right, you're, you're vaccinated, unvaccinated, just take proper cautions. Don't look for leads from anybody else. I'm tired of people dictating to us, and that's why so many people are flocking to so-called free states. I can't believe we're saying that in America today. So I want to talk about free enterprise. I want to talk about what it is like when you can't get workers, what it is like when you can't get skilled workers. What are you like when you can't get enough blue-collar workers? That's why this hour we're going to be joined by uh, Paul Catalato. He is the uh, owner, a longtime owner of Antonio's Italian Pizza, really since the 19, 1979. He raised his entire family on it, his oldest son's in the military. But his entire family, uh, outside his wife, was a teacher and is homeschooling their kids. Um, work there. And then he couldn't get workers. He once had 45 workers. Now it's down to 21. These kids don't want to work after school. They don't want to work for him. He's a great guy. He has to use his own family. But first things first, if you talk about how America works, you talk about the series on Fox Business. But if you want to talk about who's working in America, you talk to Mike Rowe. He went ahead and did dirty jobs for years. He got to know what it is like to be an American who wants to work nine to five as hard as they can and raise a family with good, solid values that get very little appreciation. So when Mike Rowe decides to come on our show, we're going to talk about the American economy from a personal basis. We don't go inside the numbers like something you'd see on Fox Business. We go inside the workforce and find out what is needed and what action he's taken. Almost everything that he has done has turned out to be successful, especially when it comes to the workforce. Number one, when he realized we didn't have enough skilled workers, he set up scholarships. When he realized we didn't have enough interest in doing those jobs, he set up shows. 
And he talked about that. And he talked about the need. And he talked about how much money you could make. And the learn is still. College is not for everyone. And through no fault of anybody, we have just pushed more and more kids into college. And they don't thrive there. They don't do well there when they'd be better off working with their hands and spending the next four years earning money enough to retire when they were good and ready. So here's my interview uh, done uh, with uh, done with Micro. I'm one of the most interesting, diverse talents you will ever meet. Do you know he was actually also an opera singer? Do you know that he wrote a song? He wrote a song that's going to be out for the holidays. I'm not kidding. And you know he's got a series on Fox Business. Another one launching, I believe, on Discovering as Dirty Bird Jobs comes back. Here's my interview with Mike Rowe, the most interesting, sorry, Mr. Dosecki's man in the world. He narrates how America works, Mondays at 8 o'clock on Fox Business, CEO of Mike Rowe Works. And those are just, I mean, you have so many titles. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing all I can to make the business card as confusing as possible. Right, or it's just separate. I mean, you could just have two cards or three cards. Tell them about Dirty Jobs. It's coming back. Oh, yeah. Give me details on that. You didn't tell me this story. January 2nd, six new episodes of Dirty Jobs is back. Did you shoot them already? We shot them. I just, I just looked at them. They looked terrific, modesty aside. They nearly killed me, like most of them did. But right. they're fun. They're great. So what brought it back? You? Did you push to bring it back? Do you own it now? No, I don't own it. But what, what happened this year is the same thing that happened back in Back in 2008, when we went into a recession, as you'll recall, and Dirty Jobs had been on the air about five years, and suddenly the show became relevant in ways that nobody anticipated, right? It, it happened again. You know, after a year and a half of lockdowns and seeing essential work in the headlines every single day, I got, I mean, literally thousands of notes on Facebook and social and whatnot from people who were saying, look, man, this... That crazy show was the granddaddy of essential working shows. Why don't you just bring it back to remind people what's, what's new, if, if anything, what's changed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that was happening at the same time as How America Works, which is kind of like Dirty Jobs Without a Host, you know? Yeah. Celebrating the same industries, but from a different perspective. And so suddenly, you know, the long answer to your question is the headlines made it, br- literally brought the show back. We couldn't not do it given what's going on in the country. So where do we see it? Uh, Dirty Jobs is on Discovery Sunday nights, 8 o'clock, starting uh, first Sunday in January. Uh, How America Works, Fox Business, Monday nights at 8. And uh, Micro Works, which you were kind enough to mention, is always open. We're in our 13th year, million dollars in work ethic scholarships we give away every year to kids who want to learn a skill that's actually in demand. So, look, I'm, I'm in a really interesting time for me right now because the shows I do line up perfectly with the foundation that I run. And the headlines, uh, some of which you just mentioned, are pushing the whole thing forward, lickety-split. So it's, uh, it's exciting. So, you know, I'm reading about Lincoln, about his youth, and I'm trying to get a picture of, you know, what I could bring in different because everyone keeps writing about his youth. So all of a sudden his land stopped producing crops. Yeah. He's got to move. Yeah. So he's got to pack everybody up. And he's got to go find another place to clear and hope he can plant crops there or else he doesn't eat. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying I want to go back to those days, but I'm in awe. Awe of that pioneer spirit that says it's my responsibility. This place is opportunity. And by the way, I am not sure if the American Indians are going to allow me to stay. Mm-hmm. I certainly don't have the protection, so I've got to learn how to shoot. There was no social safety net. Mm-hmm. I mean, from that 
to this, where you're getting money for doing nothing, for having children and everything, free preschool, free to school lunch, uh, free college. It just has it's got a ripple effect that you want to help, but you're actually hurting. Yeah. Look, I think, you know, when we can talk about free stuff, which is fascinating in its own right. But what you said right before that, I think, is is more fundamental. Our relationship with risk and now our relationship with safety. When you when safety first becomes more than a bromide, more than a platitude, like when, when, when companies actually really tell you with a straight face that your safety is their responsibility, they're lying to you. And they're doing it for lots of reasons. Sometimes it's HR, sometimes it's lawyers. But, I mean, anybody who's ever flown in the last 20 years knows this, that the first thing they say is the most important thing is your safety, really, as I strap myself into an aluminum tube that's going to break the speed of sound at 600. You know, I mean, are you, are you kidding me? Come on. Safety is critically important. It's, safety in all things is important. But we have elevated it, I think, in our culture to a point where anything that comes with any level of risk is now terrifying. So to your point, we would never populate this country the way we did. We would never press West. Right. Manifest destiny would have never happened. I mean, it, it, it's... We it's, wouldn't have made the Louisiana Purchase. Never. <laughs> never. Look, every single thing. The only four-letter word that's truly worth a damn nowadays is risk, right? And debt. Our relationship with risk and debt informs virtually everything we do. And are we out of balance with both those things? I think so, yeah. Do you think, and I'm saying this knowing you're not a political person, do you think that a politician running for office that said, I'm not here to raise you, I'm not here to raise your kids, I'm here to steer the country in a general direction but not dominate every area of your life, don't look for me to do it, mm -hmm. and says don't ask for what you can do for your country, uh, don't ask for what I can do what the country can do to be for you, but what you can do for your country. Do mm -hmm. you think someone could win saying that? Yes, I do. I'm not sure when, but soon. Because I think that sometimes, like every time, really, things have to go splat before they get better. And I don't know what splat looks like when right now. When you have now. no alternative but to change. Or, or, or very few. right? So no one knows exactly where the benchmarks are. Maybe it's 9% inflation. Maybe it's 30000 over the border instead of twenty. Maybe it's fill in the blank, right? Mm -hmm. But part of what's going on, I think, is, is not just a political divide. It's a rhetorical divide. And we're, we're struggling today and we're arguing over definitions of words that we used to understand, like infrastructure, right? People had a working understanding of what infrastructure was. And, and, then, then, all, and then all of a sudden, it was free child care, free college, and, and, and slave reparations. Now, we can have conversations about all those things, but when you jam it into a bill and call it infrastructure, people get confused. And then they get angry. When Merriam-Webster redefines anti-vax to mean those who are opposed to mandates, people go, no, wait, what? Yeah. Uh, I, that, I don't understand, right? So it's real easy, I think, to look around and say, gosh, we're awfully divided politically. But don't forget fun and games with the language. Because right. our, our very words are, are being <laughs> redefined in real time. Now they use this thing called human infrastructure. Yeah. And we just accept it. And I watch, and now I'm watching the news go, now the human infrastructure bill. I go, wait a second, they just made that up. How about social justice? Right. 
Yeah, what is that? Well, there's justice uh, and anything like any word that you put in front of justice does something to the word justice that's not quite just, right? You're, you're changing it. Yeah. it. It's like putting the in front of science. Science is science. Right. When, you, when, when it's the science, well, what, what do you mean the it science? comes doctrine. Your science? Yeah. My science? Right. Yeah. So it's a, it's a terribly confusing time. Everybody is really long on certainty. Everybody sounds so sure, so, 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 so certain. And yet, we don't know who to believe. We we're, our institutions have been hollowed out. And again, this is a long way of saying that's why Dirty Jobs came back. It's simple. It's simple. You look at dirty jobs and you see problems and you see solutions. You also see pride. Oh, and pride in the job. And humor. Right. And humor. Right. It's so easy to portray traditional tropes of work mm-hmm. by reducing it to drudgery. And this drives me crazy. Right. It's people look at work in terms of labor and management and the conflict that always exists between those two things. Well, you have unions. That's right. But labor is different than work. Labor is something. Labor's become political, truly. Work, that's personal. And and every single person in this country mm-hmm. has a vested interest in the skills gap. See, what's interesting to build on that, looking for political leadership, what if political leaders went to dirty jobs-like locations? Mm. And instead of saying, I'm going to create this, go visit it and say, this is the type of work ethic Americans should be celebrating. And kind of lay the groundwork for a temper and temperament where – what Democrat's going to get mad that I go to go, go visit a pipeline maker or even even if that's too political or uh, one of your dirty jobs locations that doesn't have political ramifications? You just see the pride in which they have. You go see their families. This is what this is what this is what happens. Yes. This is gets you on the softball team and gets lets your kids go uh, play for the football squad and they go on Friday night football. That's what a part of it is. If you have a political leader doing that rather than promising things, because the way I understand it. The way I'm getting starting to get this, I'm a little slow, but every president promises to change everything, and when they don't, they failed and create hatred, and we're going to flip everything to the other team who promise everything. Why promise? Just say, I'm not here to live your life. I'm here to set our country on a path, and if you like it, vote for me. Sure. Look, I, I love the optics of it, but we've been trained to be suspicious of both sound bites and photo ops. Who who hasn't visited the factory? Who hasn't gone to see the cars being made who's running for office? I, I can see them in my mind's eye. They they roll up their sleeves and they go shoulder to shoulder with the blue collar guys and now suddenly, well look, you saw me over here, so clearly I'm a man of the people. Well guess what? The people are on to that shtick. I I still can remember I can still remember Hillary sitting in that bar somewhere in Pennsylvania with those steel workers, you know, not, not so long ago, right? Like having a shot and, and like fitting in. And, and everybody's going, good. I mean, come on. What about saying she had hot sauce on that African-American morning show? <laughs> right. 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 So it's well, Kamala like, Harris said that. Oh, actually, Hillary Clinton said it too, I think. Yeah, these are confusing times. Somebody Google it. The point is we've become an incredibly suspicious and skeptical electorate, justifiably so. Because everything is being focus grouped, everything is being tested, all the optics, all the research, right? And, and so if you put a show on the air or a, or a commercial campaign or if you run a candidacy, 
with the dirty jobs approach, which is no second takes, tell the truth, well, then you'll get a movie like Bullworth, remember? Right? Yeah. You, you get, I mean, we've made movies about seeing people get elected for the, for the main reason of not wanting to get elected. I'll be and, honest, I didn't see Bullworth. You uh, should watch I, it. I, I, I didn't want to stop you. Yeah. But I never saw Bullworth. Like, yeah, what was the concept? Can I be honest? You're yeah. free. Why are you standing up and I'm sitting down? You're looming over me, man. It's freaking me out. People, people at home should understand. You've, you've, you've taken a very masculine pose, hand on hip. I, you're like, right? you're just Don't literally. He's literally looming over me. Right. So I either have to stand up or you have to sit down. Can I think about it? No, I'm standing <laughs> up. We'll, we'll, we'll do it like this. I don't All right. mind. All right, back in a moment. What's, what's something that you always carry with you? Hot sauce. Really? You yeah. Yeah. Hot sauce. Really? Yes. Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. There was so much cargo at the rail yards that his containers got stuck at the bottom of a pile for nine weeks. He told us it was like having his toys held hostage. The kicker, the rail line charged him for storage. This, on top of paying $30,000 for a container from China, 10 times what he paid last year. If that were as bad as it was, that would still be horrible, but it gets worse because we get penalized for storage. And that's where it becomes the theater of the absurd. That is a little bit of 60 Minutes as they try to get a hold of the supply chain. Remember, President Biden said it was too complicated for just uh, mortals to figure out. So we can't get the ships to port. When they get on port, we can't get anyone to unload them. When we finally get them unloaded, we can't get anyone to drive them to where they belong. But Walmart said, I'm going to get my own planes, going to get my own (laughs) ships. We're going to deliver it themselves. And President Biden says yesterday, go to Walmart. (laughs) They, They can handle it. That they will have plenty on their shelves. Is he solving the problem, Micro? Well, I think what he's doing in a in, in an odd way is is proving how connected we are. And what I mean by that is there's so many examples of what's happening in the country today that rely on a binary look at things. It's this or that, right? The supply chain shows us that no, it's all connected. The price of fuel storage, shipping, trains, trucks, you know, every single thing in this theater where we're sitting and in your home, which I've never been to, but I can assure you, right. has either been it's on more of a, a compound. <laughs> everything in your compound has either been on a train or a truck. Right. Every single thing. So when you start pulling on any of those threads, it's like a sweater, right? The whole thing is going to buckle right. up and you're going to wreck it. But does anyone want to fix the sweater or just say, I'd never wear that? <laughs> it seems like we just go, wow, that's a mess. Well, there's a hole in there. Yeah. Done. <laughs> no, what we want to do is we want to take a pair of scissors and just start clipping at threads. Right. And that doesn't solve the problem either. You know, so every yeah. – I don't know. I mean, it's a, I'm not saying it's a silver lining, but if you think we're right. completely isolated, siloed, and separated – Look at what happens when you mess with the supply Let's chain. promo everything you do. And your podcast is now going to become a series on TBN? Correct. It's called The Way I Heard It, coming in January. Yeah, so the podcast still available? Oh, yeah. It's out there, The Way I Heard It. You're going to be singing with John Rich on a Christmas song? It's going to be the feel-good hit of the summer. Yep. All the money's going to our charities. It's called Santa Claus Got a Dirty Job. Right. I'm, just, I'm not going to tell you. I don't know the music business, but a mm-hmm. Christmas song in the summer? Well, I'm saying it's the feel-good hit of the summer. I, summer right now means every remember earlier we were saying words don't mean what they mean anymore right that's right it's always summertime brian you're welcome 
If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. We typically work about 19 hours a day here. It's that 3 to 8 a.m. shift that we've added and tried to get others to work with us during those times as well. So you might be working 24-7, but the warehouses are not. That's right. So they have those. no place for these goods to go after they get off the ship at 3 o'clock in the morning. And there you've just diagnosed the problem. The cargo has nowhere to go. We've got to get a workforce in the warehouses and the trucking industry that are complementary to all this cargo that is, that's coming in right now. There is a lot of finger pointing. Yes, there is. The truckers blame the terminals. The terminals blame the shippers. The retailers blame the truckers and the shippers. How do you get that contentious group to sit at the table, stop pointing fingers, and actually clear out this backlog? That's been the toughest part. We haven't moved the needle yet, but it's not for a lack of trying, and we're going to have to just double down. That is Gene Sirocco, who's working on the docks, and he's a, an executive, and he's trying to explain to 60 Minutes what's going on with the supply chain. Now, the President of the United States says, I took action. I told the dock workers to work 24 hours. As you see what happened, you didn't tell anybody else to work 24 hours, and I thought I was the one who couldn't understand it. Mike Rowe is here. Mike directly has a bunch of businesses going, but he directly is affected by a supply chain problem. And it's not because his Peloton's a little late. <laughs> Therefore, his quads aren't fully developed. It's something else. Am I right, uh, Mike? Well, look, I mean, at the risk of shameless pluggery, yeah, um, I'm supposed to have bourbon on the shelves right now, named after my grandfather, Carl Noble, who was the inspiration for Dirty Jobs. And the bourbon's done, and it's delicious. It's Tennessee whiskey, and it's waiting to go in the bottles. The bottles have been out in the port, and then they got on a truck somewhere, and I, I don't know where they are now. Now, you got labels coming in from someplace else. you got a cork that comes in from another place entirely. So if you're talking about something as simple as a bottle of booze, you've got the booze, the bottle, the label, the cork. You've got dates you've got to hit. You've got retailers. You've got, I mean, it's, it's incredibly complicated, and when one little thing, one little thing goes off the rails. It trickles all the way back down. So boo-hoo, the guy on TV can't get his whiskey on the shelf. Who cares, right? Well, eventually, walk it back, and if you're a consumer and you'd like to have a little holiday cheer and none of the bottles make it, that's when things start to get real. And that's what we're seeing right now. This is trickling down to the consumer. And they have an honest question. And why, I, why is everything so expensive? Well, why is everything so expensive? And, and where is it? And why did we wait for months? We, saw, we could see the ships out there. Where I live, I can, look, I can see the ships. They're there. And they were just sitting there. Somebody somewhere must have done some sort of basic calculus and said, rut row, right? We're not going to make our dates. Right. And the fact that nobody connected those dots and the fact that anybody in power right now can be remotely surprised by that that leaves your average American wondering what what's wrong. That's why when you told when we looked at it and we said one point two trillion dollars of infrastructure, we know China puts a lot more into it, and people say, well, we needed to do it, and there's only you know people go back and forth, Republicans, Democrats, whether it's enough for green as opposed to just roads and bridges. Having said that, it's all going to come down to how that money produces the bridge and produces the road. And what we heard Barack Obama say in 2009 is I found out there's no such thing as a shovel-ready project <laughs> because for environmental issues, problem with unions, right. uh, they don't want the bridge anymore. Mm -hmm. There was nothing done. So there were not a bunch of projects that had to be signed off on. So he put the mayor of New Orleans, 
Landrew in charge of $1.2 trillion. I'm not sure what his expertise is, but I never walked into New Orleans and said, what a construct, what a marvelous wonder, you know? <laughs> and you told me, I never said, how do they build that? You right. know, it's, except for the French Quarter, but I don't think the country needs to look like the French Quarter. Well, you know, when you start out below sea level, you're rolling the dice, right? Right, <laughs> you know right, I mean? right, right, right. You're going to need some pretty yeah. amazing infrastructure. Yeah. But look, when, when Obama talked about 3 million shovel-ready jobs, that happened actually in 2008, that he sort of coined that turn of phrase. And that, coincidentally, was the year I launched MicroWorks, which was a PR campaign for open positions. And I knew I could just, from working on the show and talking to people, I knew that there weren't 3 million people standing in line waiting for, for the honor of being handed a shovel. Right. Right. right? Ah. So ah. so it's not just the nature of the work that that wasn't quite shovel ready. It was the nature of the species. It's us. Right? right. We have we have in our minds a definition of what a good job is. And it's not one that requires the use of a shovel. And so that whole campaign right. needed better marketing and a broader conversation. And look, that was 2008, 2.3 million open jobs. Today, it's 2021, 10.4 million. So clearly, I'm making things worse. <laughs> but, but we're still in the same fix. Yet 4 million people quit their jobs last month. Right. They quit. Now, people are having really lively conversations about why, but in the end, they quit. Right. So what else do we really need to know? Our relationship with work is fractured and it connects us just as surely as the supply chain does with my stupid whiskey. If I can't get a bottle of whiskey on the shelf in 2021 because I can't get the bottles, well, then think of the complexity of getting steel no, or you. lumber or construction and so forth. It's it's overwhelming. I, I, th I do think it's uh, overwhelming, but I also think that you had a great term on TV today on Fox and Friends, using the term will. Yeah, the will the, gap. There's a, this is the first time I ever heard that, but it's so basic. There's a, there's a skills gap, mm -hmm. but now there's a will, a will to acquire the skills or a will just to work. I, didn't have, I knew I didn't have a choice when I was working. If I wanted money, if I wanted to put gas in the car, if I wanted a car, I'd pay the insurance. I knew exactly what the insurance was, right. the body plastic on the Mustang, how much that would cost. So there was just no choice. Mm -hmm. Do you think the problem is we have a choice because we have so much money in the system? Do you think we become weaker as a country or softer as a country? I think if you're going to talk about the macro, then I, sure, the answer is yes. But macro is tough for micro <laughs> because cookie-cutter advice and, and, and general observation. I don't want to say everybody's lazy who quit their job. But that's exactly the point. This is how the skills gap gets politicized. If you look at the existence of 10.4 million jobs and you look at the number of people who are leaving, my buddies on the left will tell you it's because their employers are greedy, rapacious capitalists and the jobs themselves aren't very good. And if that argument doesn't stick, then they'll tell you that the skills gap is simply a myth and link you to a bunch of articles in the New Republic that confirm their belief and so forth. My buddies on the right, on the other hand, will tell you, no, look, the fundamental human condition is flawed. Give people a chance to do it the easy way or the hard way. They'll take the easy way and so forth and so on. So on the one side, you got people talking about laziness. And on the other side, you have people talking about greed. So the truth, 
I reckon, is somewhere in the middle. But it's not macro. It's right. the individual. And I will say this. What you just said, I'm going to factor that into what we just went through for the last year and a half. Everybody on the planet was affected by the pandemic. If you didn't have it, you feared you were going to get it. We know about, and that was a great point you took about risk. But can you imagine if the message was, yeah, this is going to be out there. I'm a little concerned about this. And these are, this is the numbers I'm looking at. And this is what China has been telling me. And uh, what I'm going to tell you is the best thing you could do is lose weight. The best thing you could do is eat right. Mm. The best thing you could do is exercise. You're not going to get elected. What I'm going to – no, I'm, I have the office already. Right. What okay. Have you, what have you said that? Yep. What have you said right now? The, the, the people who are overweight, 85% of the casualties for people that are overweight are of underlying conditions. So what I want you to do is go to our website. We've got some basic things you can do without any equipment. You could do with a towel. You could do at home. Mm-hmm. And we can even have video demonstrations. And we're working on this. So even if you decide not to do it, but imagine if you just said, hey – I could take action yeah. rather than wait and cower and watch Netflix. I could take action. My best friend did it. Chuck, he walked. He and I walked every morning during the lockdowns. He's in L.A. I'm in San Francisco. And we talked. We caught up on business. But he lost 35 pounds. Wow. Getting up every morning and walking for two hours. Here's the masks that my foundation sells. They say safety third. All right. We've raised three hundred fifty thousand dollars selling these masks. Yeah, because safety third is exactly what you just said. What if what if our leaders said, listen, we do care deeply about your safety, but not as much as you do and not as much as you should. So if you're going to spend the lockdown watching Netflix and eating bonbons, right, then okay, choices. But. The, the fundamental problem with the example you just laid out is that the entire proposition is rooted in personal responsibility. And that's another one of those words that's been co-opted. So now if we talk about that or rugged individualism or work ethic, well, you know, guess what? You're on one side of the political aisle because those words have been abdicated by the other guys. Likewise, if I'm going to talk about kindness and decency and empathy, right. all right, well, then you must be a Democrat because they own all that. Why the Republicans would give those words right. away, I don't understand. And why the Democrats would give those other words away, I don't understand. But we have. And we're messing with the language, and it's going to come back to bite us in the butt. Right. Uh, speaking of bite us in the butt, yes. I don't have a transition, but I wanted to emphasize that <laughs> line. Um, I, think, I think you're done. It's not weird at all, man. Right. Nothing uh, yeah. weird? It's Nothing. always a pleasure to talk to you. Right. Uh, even I though- feel like I learned something every time, by, and I always kick myself for not coming up with it. It yeah. seems like you could take a complicated thing and make it simple in one line, and it makes me feel so inadequate, which is why Allison keeps booking you is unbelievable. Well, look, Allison clearly has a level of taste that's both sophisticated and elevated, and <laughs> so clearly do your listeners, right. at least when I'm on, and so thank you. <laughs> and by the way, if you offer her more money, she'll leave. Really? Yeah, so you could probably get her, yeah. Oh, well, we're hiring, actually. <laughs> okay. Yeah, really? no, we got supply chain issues, as you may have heard. <laughs> hey, if you could find a way to make my whiskey, uh, that will be great. Fantastic. Deal. All right. Hey, uh, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Anytime. All right. Do you mean that? No. No, I didn't think so. Back in a moment. Expanding your knowledge base. It's Brian Kilmeade. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Brian Kilmeade. Uh, Welcome back. Just closing out this hour. Special special thanks to Mike Rowe uh, for talking to us about the things that matter most. And I think you can relate to people like Mike Rowe more, and especially because I know a lot of you listen in the car, and some a lot of you are truck drivers or, or hauling things for a living. 
uh, blue-collar salespeople and are very much needed. I'm sure you've seen the numbers. There are, I think, uh, 11 million, between 10 and 11 million jobs open, and there are about 7 million people without a job. It seems to me some are not trying. Yeah, there's some some mismatch when it comes to skills. I get it. Some people have uh, maybe some depression issues as it relates, some physical, emotional issues as it relates to this pandemic. I understand it. I'm not talking about you. But I'm talking about there's a lot of people out there choosing not to work, one of which uh, it really hits home with my next guest. You heard he was referenced. I referenced him in my micro interview. It's Paul Catalato. He is the owner and founder of Antonio's Italian Restaurant in Elkhart, Indiana. MNC, uh, MNC 95.3 is one of our coveted affiliates out in that area in South Bend. And every time we go and do an event called this noise event, we always do Paul, go to Paul's house, uh, excuse me, house, restaurant for the post-game dinner. And the food is unbelievable. In fact, he's won international awards for, uh, for his cooking, for his pizza. But he can't get workers. That is the issue. Can't get workers. And he feels guilty because he feels as though he had to sacrifice the youth of his kids because they have come in to work for him and learn all the skills to keep a restaurant going. Because the rest of Indiana, and maybe your city, just doesn't seem to want to work, especially high school and college kids. Here's my interview, as heard on TV, Fox and Friends with Paul. Let's listen. All right, our next guest lifts up to his slogan, we feed you like your family. That's his motto, turning to family members of all ages to serve their award-winning pizza in Indiana. I mean, they win world championships at Antonio's. That's not just stopping, uh, stopping staff shortages, inflation and supply chain issues from threatening business ahead of what should be a busy holiday season. Now, Antonio's Italian restaurant's owner, Paul Catalato, joins us now. Paul, you, like many people, are uh, short of staff. How bad yes, is it are. for you in Elkhart, Indiana? Well, uh, Brian, so we, we, uh, we had about 45 people at the end of 2019. At, 2000, at the end of 2020, we had 31. And year to date, we have 21 employees. Uh, that, that includes me. We have a great affiliate, uh, WTRC 95.3, and you're an advertiser. So I have a chance every time I do an event there to go see you in action. You have your family. To keep this restaurant going, you have your family members. This is some of those pictures, you're probably not seeing it, of your family in action. They stack right. the kitchen. And, and you, you, yes, your family and rallies around you after school every day. <laughs> well, we homeschool, so it makes it easier. But, yeah, they're here every night. Uh, and if it wasn't for my girls and my son when he's in town, uh, I really don't know how we, we, we would survive uh, with this shortage of employees it's it's uh it makes you want to pull your hair out at times like why why can't we get employees why can't we get employees and brian you know it's not just the restaurant industry it's every industry every supermarket hardware store uh fast food chain you know any any uh anywhere you go there's a help wanted sign up your kids worked at a young age and they have to but they you want them to work you feel as though, for the most part, parents aren't pushing their kids to work. And that's why, even though you have a high school down the block, you can't get anyone to even apply. No, we have a high school literally two blocks away. And uh, we, we can't get, I think my sign broke. It said help wanted for, I think, over a year straight. And we, we just can't get applicants. Right. Uh, and I don't know the answer why uh, these kids don't want to work. I think it's more of a... Um, uh, I don't need to work. I don't, I don't yeah. need to work. Uh, yeah. my, my parents aren't making me work. 
You said something to me. You said, you know, as your kids come every single day and you're washing dishes and doing everything, when your kids told me, I want my dad touching tables, talking to customers, he shouldn't be working this hard, 45 hours, uh, you know, every three days. And you, you said you're afraid you're stealing your kids' youth. Yes. I look at my kids and they're, they're, they're working their butt off. And uh, I, I wonder, it's like, well, what would they be doing if they weren't here working? And I asked him that the other day. He says, Dad, I, I, this is what I want to do. Um, but I felt like I've stolen their youth. My, my wife says, you know, you know when my, my youngest comes in and, and says, well, you stole another one from me. Okay, you've got my 15-year-old. My 15-year-old started working when she was 11, 10 or 11. And she says, well, that was my last baby. You stole, you stole another one. But, uh, you know, it's, it, it's really hard. Yeah. They love you to death, and they, and they work so hard. You're raising uh, great kids, and you have a son in the military uh, as well. So yes. you put the value of the work ethic. They, I don't think they missed anything, but I just thought it was very telling that you said that as you continue to be a, an example of a great American success story. Pat, uh, Paul Catalano, it's been a pleasure to get to know you. Hopefully people will report and fill out some applications uh, so you can start touching tables again. Paul, thanks so much. Thank you, Brian. So I tell you, I, I know people win awards, and they say, well, you know, uh, I, it doesn't taste that great. I, I've ordered everything off his menu that's not meat-related because I don't eat red meat. Uh, and it is fantastic. He is so talented. Now his daughter went out and won a pizza championship. They have a son in the Special Forces. And now Paul, in particular, has his kids coming back from college to work. And oftentimes he is washing dishes when he should be touching tables. So that is it. Real quick, the President Freedom Fighter is out. I had a chance to sign a lot of those books at the Noise of Eight event when I went to Indiana. I actually went to Indiana to examine the boyhood home of Abraham Lincoln. The President Freedom Fighter is the story of Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and their battle to save America's soul. In the book, it doesn't run from America's past or original sin. It talks about how we overcame it. The stops and starts, the problems along the way, like a civil war, but we were better because of it. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, a special edition here as we look back at the President Freedom Fighter. Uh, the book I released on November 2nd, I think it's an important part of American history that so many times in the past, people don't want to talk about race, uh, people accuse Others of saying, hey, CRT, it's just because white people don't want to talk about black people and white black people don't want to talk about white people. or It's nothing to do with that. And the case in point, this story, Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and the Battle to Save America's Soul, was able to put a special on TV thanks to the great work of Fox Nation producers. And uh, we did a great hour show on Sunday night at 10 o'clock on November 7th. And what I wanted to do was bring this back and bring it and make it special for radio. And that's exactly what we're doing. Uh, this hour, we're going to be here from Tim Scott as well as Lindsey Graham, two South Carolina senators. And we know the first state to secede from the union was South Carolina. So I went down to the battery overlooking Fort Sumter and talked to Tim Scott and Lindsey Graham on a Sunday afternoon about this famous area and the role it plays in American history, how the Civil War started, and what it means to them and the history that they learned. Let's take a listen uh, to the president of Freedom Fighter, the Civil War.
can't tell the story of the president and freedom fighter, Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and their battle to save America's soul without focusing on the centerpiece, and that's the Civil War, a war in which Abraham Lincoln wanted to do everything to avoid. But there's no better place to tell that story than right here in South Carolina, the state that was the first to secede right after Lincoln was elected. And who better to tell that story than the two sitting senators of South Carolina, Lindsey Graham and Tim Scott, doing the same job from very different backgrounds. Well, I mean, Civil War started here almost the embodiment of this nation's greatest divide and the unification of this nation all starts here. Senator, you realize that growing up? Yeah, I remember talking about the Civil War, and I said Civil War, and my teacher's third, fourth grade, I can't remember, took a ruler, hit me on the hand, and said, it's the war between the states. Different perspective. What about for you, Tim? Where did you grow up? What was history like for an African-American kid? Yeah, growing up here in Charleston, uh, history was really important, always has been. One of the most important places where slaves came through, I think two-thirds or three-quarters of all slaves early on came through Charleston. And so you were always immersed in history. Uh, telling the whole story, I think, is really important. I don't think I got that early in my education. The whole story is that progress takes patience. I love the tension between Frederick Douglass and President Lincoln. And how Douglass should have been, rightfully so, angry at the lack of progress, pushing Lincoln to move as quickly as possible. And at the same time, you have to admire and respect Lincoln's patience. His primary objective was to keep the nation together. And for a long time, he thought that's the way you averted a war. And frankly, it took the Civil War in order for us to unite the nation. But progress and patience are linked together unmistakably in politics, but really in life. Senator, you said it was a war between the states. And guess what? When this started, they were saying this wasn't a war in the very beginning to free slaves. Right. And if Lincoln had said that, he wouldn't have had much of a Union army. That's the reality. Well, the reality is without slavery, there'd been no war. Yep. So to those, there's been a fight to redefine, to define the Civil War all of my life. When I grew up um, in a segregated school, we were taught it was um, an honorable endeavor uh, and it just didn't work out. Be proud of your ancestors, be proud of the fact that you stood up for the sovereignty of South Carolina. Now there's a uh, effort to make everybody, Robert E. Lee included, to be the carnate and, you know, evil incarnate. The truth of the matter is that it was about slavery. Um, I'm glad we lost, and I'm from South Carolina. Two I'm trying us. to learn about how a nation get big, become so divided and go to war with each other, but we're not the first nation to go to war with each other. How these things end and what happens afterwards is very important. So this effort to, to rewrite history, it was done in the South to rewrite history. It's being done now to write it in a different way. The truth of the matter is there was a war between the South and North. The slavery was the central issue. And my great, great, whatever grandfathers were privates in the Confederate Army. I doubt they owned slaves. They were probably fighting for their neighbor. Uh, but at the end of the day, the Massachusetts 54th are the heroes. Yes. And everybody in South Carolina, uh, I'm not so sure we're all evil incarnate either. Senator Tim yeah. Scott, your upbringing when it came to the Civil War. Yes. As an African-American kid, how did they tell that story and how did it make you feel? I can't tell you the number of times that I've heard the, the War of Northern Aggression uh, growing up here because that's just the way that it's termed. I, I heard that recently uh, when I was doing some, some work around the state. And the truth is that that frames the history very differently. Very importantly, though, that I had some really compassionate teachers who really wanted to make sure that we had the full picture. I love teachers 
who want to provide objective information and you come to your own conclusion. Part of the challenge where we live today is everything is subjective. I was born and bred on this concept that the Bible is the ultimate arbiter of truth. And upon that gospel, you build an objective standard. And because of that objective standard, we have the rule of law. And so for me, from a historical perspective, it's really important for us to have that gospel truth. And, and as I became more familiar with it, you became really, you understood why we had such a, just an atrocity and a challenge that birthed a nation that all of us can be proud of. I mean, think back to those days in the Civil War where brothers literally fought blood brothers. Fathers fought their kids because they wanted the Declaration of Independence and this notion that all men were created equal to be real. So often today, we forget the sacrifice that was paid for ultimate freedom, that all men and women would have the right to live out their full potential. And to me, embedded in history is that important fact. I'm glad that I was able to see not both sides of that war, but both sides of the issue that progress requires sacrifice. And sometimes it requires taking on your own side. And for men in those days to do that, so that the three of us can have this conversation is one of the most powerful yet seldom told part of the Civil War and the story of bringing America together. There was no 13th Amendment, 14th Amendment, right. and 15th Amendment. Because of the Civil War, mm -hmm. there were three. One, you have freedom. Right. Two, you have citizenship. And three, men, black men can vote. So people say America's flawed. Some say America is getting better. I think it's both are true. I mean, as long as you have people in involved, you're going to be flawed. As long as you have people of goodwill trying to make it better, you'll get better. Absolutely. Tim, uh, in my state, uh, we've had Nikki Haley was the governor, Indian American descent. Uh, Tim Scott is the only African American Republican in the Senate. He came from South Carolina. I'm proud of the direction we're going. Are we there yet? No. We're having a debate about Robert E. Lee. I find this fascinating. Is he the villain? Is he the hero? Is he somewhere in between? Uh, he was offered the, um, to command the Union forces. He says, no, I can't. I can't turn on my native Virginia. But after the war, he was indispensable in healing the nation. So we're talking about all these monuments around here. What should we, what view should we have of those who fought in the war? I think we should look at Robert E. Lee in his totality that yes, he led the Confederacy in rebellion, but when the rebellion was put down, he was the first one to say, lay your arms down and be good citizens. So these are very complicated things. We went in my lifetime from teaching that this was a noble endeavor that fell short to now having a discussion as to whether or not you can even mention or have any remembrance of those who fought in the war. So somewhere in the middle is probably where we should be. I, I do think that we can literally uh, remember our history without celebrating every aspect of our history. Amen. And the last thing you should do is bury your history. Amen. I, I don't know why we're so fixated on finding a way to bury the things that we find distasteful or disgusting or we don't like. If every side gets to pick and choose what part of history they don't like, when do we get to hear the whole story? Yeah. And part of what I think about your book and why I'm excited about this opportunity is to tell the story of who we are as a nation and the struggles and the 
passion and the pain that, was, that led into purpose, all that's so important and powerful if we are going to get our story right for the next century of American history. So you, you talk about uh, Frederick Douglass. Oh, yes. And he escapes to freedom seven years later. He's yeah. an international... Uh, rock star. Rock star, yes. giving speeches in Ireland and England and Scotland, and uh, and people can't believe it. And he shows the, the marks on his back from his days as a slave. Yes. And instead of saying, woe is me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the country better rather than leave the country. He came back. He paid, he paid the 700 bucks and came back home. People paid it for him. Yes, and came back home to America because he wanted to fight for all people to experience the freedom that he was enjoying. I, I think that's, once again, a story of sacrifice. And it's a story of the American journey. It's, it's something that I, I cling to because I understand and appreciate that no matter how hard we think times are today, no matter how, how divided we believe America is, it's only because we were born in the year 2021. Because literally, if you go back <laughs> when I was born, much more division there. And my mother was born in the 40s. Yeah. Infinitely more division there. And my grandfather was born in 1921. Very different America. And so when you tell the whole story, America is nothing if it's not the story of amazing progress in very limited time. Senator, uh, Abraham Lincoln also, as a white guy, he came from abject poverty with yep. uh, illiterate parents. Yep. His dad made him work all day. He had one year <laughs> of formal schooling. And yeah. it's hard to imagine things stacked up more against a guy like Abraham Lincoln. Well, it, America has been blessed to have the right people at the right time. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how that is. George Washington could Thank have been God. a king and said, eh, no thanks. Yeah. Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass formed a partnership that changed America forever. So I don't know. I, I don't know if this is just destiny playing out. But in America, I'm the first in my family to go to college. Uh, I was born in the back of a, a, a bar. Neither one of my parents finished high school. So this story kind of keeps going on and on. It's what makes it sort of special. But I would say this to your audience. America has been blessed. Somehow, the right generals show up at the right time. And America seems when we need the right leadership the most, it just appears. And Abraham Lincoln is probably the best example of the right guy at the right time. And you would never been able to tell it by his background. Can I just say divine intervention does matter? Yeah. Uh, and we see so. those fingerprints, the fingerprints of the Lord on this nation from its mm -hmm. inception to where we are today. Yes, and I would say this. Frederick Douglass not only wanted to push for equality yes. and freedom, but he put, his he put his actions and his words together, and he went and met with the Secretary of War. He Absolutely. met with the uh, President of the United States. He recruited yes. those. He urged for equal pay for, yeah. for, e for equal soldiering. Absolutely. And one of the beauty beauties of that recruitment effort included his own two sons who served in the 54th. Uh, and one of the things that, as I was doing the homework on the 54th, I was amazed at how important the American flag was. When they were being shot at, they wanted to keep the flag from ever touching the soil. And there, there are just... See the picture of bullets going all around you and through the flag, and yet the man holding the flag, the African-American holding the flag, doesn't want it to touch the soil because it was so important to defend our flag because it was defending our nation. And so part of that story, especially that should be told where we live today, is how those from Frederick Douglass to the 54th, they fought for the unification of the country based on a conviction in our country not in opposition to the country, not in opposition to our founding fathers, 
but because they wanted it to live to our fullest potential, they fought for our nation under our flag. There's something about America that inspires people to see the better side, not the worst side. And all I can say about the characters we're talking about, Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, they just seem to come along at the right time. Okay, so now you have an idea of where we're going with the book and with the special. When we come back, Tim Scott on how Douglas's opinion on the Constitution changed. Remember, he was thought it had to be torn up, had to be redone. He feels a lot differently now. What happened during that time? He evolved. What is wrong with the country evolving, you evolving, me evolving, people becoming better? That's the story of these two great Americans. From the Frederick Douglass perspective, Tim Scott takes us when we return. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. So glad you're here. It was uh, for the last two years and two months, I've had a chance to research the life of Frederick Douglass as well as the life of uh, Abraham Lincoln. And I know you know about Lincoln, and I know you know a little bit at the very least about Douglass, and certainly more people give him respect to this remarkable man's life, born a slave, and what he was able to, to become. Once he escaped escaped to freedom. And once he got north and once he wrote his autobiography, it was time to evaluate the country. Should I help solve it or should I try to get out of here and just go somewhere else? Should we try to push to redo the Constitution to include all men, freedom for all truly? Does it have to be redone? That's the question that Tim Scott took upon uh, when looking at the life of Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass wasn't hard and fast with an opinion on this. He was somebody still developing, a man that sought out education, never had one formal year of schooling, but as bright as anyone to walk the planet. When it comes to a constitutionologist, I think by the end of his life, Frederick Douglass could have written his own constitution, but believes ours was brilliant. But he didn't grow up feeling that way, not even when he escaped to freedom. Tim Scott, on how Douglass's opinion changed and how maybe we should all do the same thing, open to evolving on America's past. Senator, uh, one thing about... Uh, Frederick Douglass in particular is that he thought we should live up to our Constitution. He said our Constitution wasn't flawed. He changed. In the beginning, he had William Lloyd Garrison as a mentor, and he said, this Constitution is terrible. Absolutely. Then he ends up with Garrett Smith. He goes, no, we're just not living up to it. Where does Senator Tim Scott feel? I think that's the best place to start and to finish a conversation about my conviction and who we are as Americans. I believe that we are an exceptional people. I believe that the hand Prince of God is on this country, and it's our responsibility to live up to the full meaning of what it means to be an American. And we see that in our Declaration of Independence, and we see that in our amended Constitution. We shouldn't run away from our foundation. We should run towards our foundation. Because as flawed men put it together, flawed men can make it better. The beauty of America is it's only going to be flawed men and women looking at each other, learning to love and work together to make this American family one single unit. When that happens, Katie bar the door. Right. The best news is coming for this country. Senator, you're a lawyer. Well, it's a unifying document. Uh, it was founded because people were leaving England because they didn't like the deal they had. Okay, you couldn't own a gun because the king didn't want anybody to have guns because they may turn on you. Uh, you couldn't criticize the king. There was no independent press. So the Bill of Rights or the people who are coming from a... Uh, basically uh, autocratic situation to say it's going to be different here. So the first thing we did is focus on the individual. What makes America different than any other place on the planet? The individual's first, the government second. And every now and then we get that wrong, like the times in which we're living. But it's the individuals that make the Constitution a document 
that lives that are willing to fight and die for the concept. You know, at the time of the Civil War, there was no 14th Amendment. Mm -hmm. So the one thing that impresses me, of, you know, being a military kind of guy, is that if you were in the 54th and you came to South Carolina to fight, your worst fear was to be captured. Not killed, to be captured. Yeah, I always uh, enjoyed having Tim Scott out there. You know, keep in mind, when I asked them to come out, it took like three months to get both their schedules together on a Sunday afternoon. I had no idea where they stood. Tim Scott and Lindsey Graham led me. I was all ears. That was Tim Scott on Douglas and how he evolved. More on that in just a moment. Because when you talk about African-American anger, a right to be angry then. What about now? Senator Tim Scott on that. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show, special edition, the president and the freedom fighter. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. All right, when you think about the founding of our country, 1776, not 1619, but no doubt about it, when you talk about seven continents in the world at that time, every, every continent had one thing in common. Slavery was present, not just African-Americans, everywhere. So in America, it was no different. The original sin, no question. The question is, how much should that early injustice factor into anger scene today and racial strife today? I posed that question to Rick Scott, as well as Lindsey Graham. And we discussed all that over the course of an afternoon on a Sunday, all went into a special on the President of Freedom Fighter based on my book that was released November 2nd. So take a listen to more of Tim Scott and Lindsey Graham on that very issue. What is it like having a country that said you weren't a citizen? What is it like having a country that your ancestors couldn't vote? Uh, they had no say. They were brought from other countries. When you talk to other African-Americans, Americans, yes. Do they? Do you see? Do you understand the anger that they have? Even though it was well, generations back, do you have that same? Certainly, I can understand it personally. I mean, there's there are always times when you're angry about injustice, and we should all it should stir the soul of all of us. Injustice. When you look back at the atrocities and the challenges, think about rape. Think about all the challenges, the uh, dismembering of soldiers and and folks who would run away. You just think about the treatment of a human being. How can you not be frustrated about that past? We should be. We should make sure that we harness that frustration and make sure it's as constructive today as possible because the goal isn't to make America better for me and for you. The goal should be to make America better for the generation that follows us. Part of the sacrifice of the current day is the ability to see behind you, to look not back in history, but to look at the generation that's coming behind you. How are you preparing this country for the next generation? I will say that my grandfather paid a heavy price having to look down and step off of a sidewalk if a white person was coming. Uh, the, the, the humiliation and the anger that could have mounted up in him and been toxic, he didn't pass it down to my mother and she didn't have it to pass it down to me. And so while I understand the pain, the misery and the frustration and, and frankly even some of the stuff that still happens today, what I have to remember is we have made progress, decade after decade after decade, undeniable progress. And to be here today as the first African-American elected to the United States Senate and the United States House in the history of this country, having beaten Strom Thurmond's son for Congress in the birthplace of the Civil War, we don't have to look for progress. I see it every day in the mirror. Right. But what I don't see is my face, what I do see is that people of good intent who don't look like me said that the content of the character is actually more important than the color of the skin. 
Today, what others want you to believe is that the look of a man is how we judge the person. Antithetical and contrary to the last couple hundred years of history that we fought for. We fought for the content of the character. And here in Charleston, right. beginning of the Civil War, 180, de 180 degrees turn. And I'm thankful to live in a place where I have to earn the right to represent people right. of this great state. But if you earn it, you get it. No matter whether you're a poor kid from a single parent household running against the biggest names in the history of South Carolina. Senator, when you're hearing Senator Scott talk about walk, clear off the sidewalk, a white person's coming, yeah. get to the back of the bus, you're black. Uh, don't use that water fountain, use this water fountain, don't use this bathroom, use that bathroom. And those signs exist in civil rights museums. Yeah, yeah. Make sure they're not forgotten. How does that make you feel? Well, number one, I lived through this. This is not ancient history. I didn't go to school with a black person until I was in the fifth or sixth grade. Mm -hmm. My mom and dad owned a bar in central South Carolina near, near Clemson. Uh, black people couldn't drink until late into the 70s. So this is in my lifetime. This is in Tim's lifetime. I'm 10 years older. But this is not ancient history. It's not that long ago that in South Carolina, black kids and white kids didn't go to the same school. Yeah. So what's happened in the last, since 1965? 50 years. Things are better. And I think the biggest thing that's changed my state is, in many ways, sports. When you play on a team, you begin to quickly judge who's the most talented. Yeah. And you want to win, and you don't care. You don't care who's the quarterback as long as they're the best yeah. quarterback. Yeah. So integration of public schools has changed everything. It's the biggest agent of change in my lifetime because it forces you to get to know the people as individuals. And I can't remember seeing a black person in a position of authority until I got in high school where we had teachers. Yeah. It's one thing to grow up where everybody in authority looks exactly like you. Yeah. It was an amazing experience to go in the military where authority was not based on how you look is sort of your ability and we're not perfect in the military so I would say this about South Carolina uh, we have got our fair share of blame and we've created uh, our fair share of problems for ourselves and the nation but I think we're on the right track and the best evidence of how well we're doing as a state is this man right here right. What, what Lindsay just talked about that I think is really important is meritocracy and, and that's what I was trying to say earlier if you earn it, you get it. Uh, in sports, having played a little football in high school and college, you, you don't want nobody the, cares. The, 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 you don't want socialism on your football team. <laughs> That's right. What you want is, Absolutely. is, is a free enterprise, free market, Amen. where the views that are blocking for you are the best you can right. find. That's right. And the same is true in our military. My brothers both served. One's a command sergeant major in the Army, 32 years. The other one went to the Air Force Academy, 26 years, colonel in the Air Force. The one thing I listened to my brothers talk about is not... The, the black kid or the white kid, it's, it's the person who was the leader. We had respect Absolutely. for leadership because they earned it. And the, that's the beauty of our system, yeah. is if you earn it, you get it. That's what we have to protect. If we are to understand American exceptionalism, we have to understand the free market. We have to understand meritocracy. We have to understand that our nation is always pushed in the direction that the individual is able to keep what they earn. That is an unusual story around the world, even today. And why we don't talk more about the importance of that one ingredient right. that makes us special 
I don't understand it. And when you're in a battle, you want the person by you that's going to help you achieve the objective, whether it's a war or a sporting event or a business enterprise. And, and that's what I like so much about Tim. Tim is able to talk to the young people of South Carolina about it is about you. Frederick, you talk about overcoming. Just yes. to play that. Yeah. Frederick Douglass, they said you can't read. Make sure that you never teach slaves to read and yep. write. Frederick Douglass was determined to manipulate his way to learn how to read and Figure write. It out. He would yeah. run errands for white kids in order to get a book. Right. He would look over the shoulder through a window when white kids so were getting tutored. Learn the words. He would find a way to learn the words, and then he learned to read. Yes. He would find a way. Absolutely. Nobody would ever have to overcome anything like that, yeah. I think, in America today. But isn't that an example? Whatever it takes, I will do it. Listen, uh, that's part of that American exceptionalism. I mean, bottom line is, uh, I've said several times that education and a good education is the closest thing to magic in America. You want to even, you want to level the playing field? Amen. Give our poorest kids and our poorest zip codes access to the highest quality education. Race becomes yep. a non-issue for the most part. Until then, we're going to still find ways to fight over things that don't matter as much as quality education and a free market system that's been preserved for those who qualify to experience the benefits of it. The war started, Senator Graham. It wasn't going well. There was supposed to be 90 days. The union gets rid of them. Instead, it's a battle loss after battle loss after battle loss. Right. They had trouble recruiting. Right. How dark were those days if you're Abraham Lincoln? Well, so Abraham Lincoln had generals that apparently didn't want to fight. <laughs> <laughs> so the bottom line is, structurally, the North had a huge advantage in terms of an industrial base. But on the battlefield, uh, the first couple of years were very, very difficult for the Union. But the country, um, people rallied. I think the cause of the union was so just. The average union, you had uh, draft rights in New York. The average Confederate soldier probably didn't own any slaves. The bottom line is that slavery was a central issue. And as the South uh, began to lose ground, Gettysburg was the turning point, I guess. Yeah. You know, I'm no historian. What I'm trying to tell you is we're still talking about the Civil War today. We're trying to figure out, should we have a monument to anything on the Confederate side? Should we honor the dead? Should we pull everything up by its roots? Uh, I don't think the answer is yes to that. I think we should have a balanced view. It wasn't a noble cause, and I was taught that all my life until recent times. But the people who fought the war were probably caught up in the times in which they lived. And in the times in which they lived, you were fighting for your family and your friends and your neighbor. You didn't, Lee didn't turn on Virginia. He stuck with the Confederacy, but when it was over, he says, quit. And that's the kind of, Frederick Douglass came back from Europe where he was probably well-received and at mm -hmm. no personal risk. So when Frederick Douglass says, give me 700 bucks, I'll go back into the belly of the beast, that's what we honor. When the 54th Massachusetts comes to die across the street or get captured by people who hate their guts, that's what we honor. When Robert E. Lee said, it's over, lay down your weapons, I think that's worth honoring. Lincoln wore every single one of those uh, battle oh. losses on his face. He was only 56 years old. With he looked like there. he was 106. Absolutely. So how, this was bleak for a while. Sam. Oh, yes. I mean, I think, I think of his, uh, his inaugural address when he was asking the question, uh, rhetorical question, will, will, will this war tarry until every drop of blood taken by the, by the lash is requited at the sword? I, mean, I can't imagine that internal anguish of trying to figure out how to 
you keep the country together and in the greatest sin the nation's ever known and battling with that and writing about it and journaling about it was his way out. I think one of the things he says is, you know, if, if you would not be anyone's slave, then you can't be anyone's slave master. The, the, the poetic power of his words that were probably brought to him through much reflection and the evolution of his relationship with, with Frederick Douglass right. is something for another story, another day, but that the power of those two men understanding their juxtapositions, juxtapositions right. is so important in what we see today and what we are living through today and how we should be hopeful because if they can do it in 1863, yeah. God knows we can do it in 2021. It was imperative that he win re-election. And by yeah. the time he's ready to run re-election, they had to start winning the war. And then to, for him to do that, he ends up running almost as an abolitionist. The guy that said, we can get this together, keep your slaves, we just want to keep the fight together. Right. And the end said, forget it. We're going to pass the 13th Amendment, 14th Amendment. I'm even going to go for the 15th, even though we wouldn't live to see it. Evolution. So he yeah. talked about that. No, America he, had changed just within the war. So Right. So he was trying to rally the nation to the great cause, rather than trying to be the guy that sees all sides and keeps the nation together, says, okay, we've got a war, I'm in it to win it. Emancipation Proclamation was the ultimate declaration of what the war was about. And it, uh, there are a lot of people in the North who didn't want to go down that road. It was pretty hard to sell because, uh, you know, that was, that was making a statement a lot of people in the We're North ready. didn't feel comfortable with. But it's probably his biggest moment is when he decided the path. He says, I'm all in now. I played this, hold the yeah, nation yeah. together, try to keep us Dear from, daughter. yeah, then yeah. it says, okay, we're in a war, we're going to win it, we're going to win it for the right reason. And that's exactly what happened. They wanted it out, Frederick Douglass wanted it out right away. 100%. He had to wait three years. Yes. yes. Uh, and I don't blame him. Do you understand? 100%. Listen, if, if I were if Frederick Douglass at the time, I'd say, Lincoln, you, you must be crazy. Can you not see <laughs> the pain, the suffering, yeah, the yeah. misery of the slaves, and you want me to be patient? And at the same time, as you, as you read your book, you get towards the end of your book, you realize that even Frederick Douglass himself, with a different perspective on Lincoln, comes to the conclusion, here's a man suffering the war on the inside, making pragmatic decisions that will lead to the, the inevitable freedom for all people. And there is almost a moment uh, in, in, I think it's chapter 12 or 13, where you see uh, through the eyes of Douglas, a new Lincoln. He hadn't changed, though. But when your eyes are opened, you see differently. So that's a look at where we're at today and as it relates to the riots in 2020, what happened in the 1960s on. When we come back, what Lincoln and Douglas would think of America now, today, and the revisionist way in which we're looking at our past and the hatred we seem to have within our country for our country. How exactly did that happen? Especially when you consider these two men, Douglas and Lincoln, brought us through and went through a civil war with over 600,000 died. Aren't we much better now? That question is visited when we come back on The President and the Freedom Fighter. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, special edition, The President and Freedom Fighter. If you want to see me on the road, talk about this book, just go to briankilmeade.com. Depending on when you're listening, when you have to listen, you'll see where I'm at because I have very busy November and December. Right now, I want to continue and wrap up this hour uh, by talking about through the eyes of Senator Graham and Senator Scott, two South Carolina senators, one black, one white, both grew up very uh, uh, poor, 
but different schooling, different perspectives on the Civil War, obviously, together now. And they talked in South Carolina at the Battery overlooking Fort Sumter about Lincoln and Douglas and what they think Lincoln and Douglas would think about America today. Let's listen. Lastly, what would Lincoln and Douglas say now if he saw America, Tim? You know, I, I, I think they would scratch their heads, pull on their hair a little bit. I can't do that with mine. But the truth is, I think they would be bewildered a little bit on the revisionist of history, the, those who revise history. I, it, it strikes me that two men who paid such a personal price for the progress of this nation, uh, sitting together, looking at the state of affairs, would wonder why we spend so much time talking about so little progress when there's so much progress completely visible. I can't imagine how they would sit there and say, wait a second, they're talking about what? This was not even a dream in my lifetime, they would say. But here we are, standing together uh, in a nation that should celebrate one American family in a way that we, we sometimes don't see uh, in the public forum. Senator Graham, what would Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass think of America today? I have no idea, but I know this. is what they did should inspire me. The question for me is, in light of what they did for the country, what's the appropriate response for us? How do we honor what they did? How do you honor people who are willing to die for, for a just cause? Uh, President Lincoln preserved the Union on his watch. Question for us, are we doing all we can to preserve the Union? There's actually talk of uh, secession in places. Yeah, oh yeah. And when you poll that issue, I think Texas had a poll where a high number of people were actually talking about succeeding. I hear that, believe it or not, that America is the blue-red America is getting to be so intolerant of each other that maybe we'll break the bonds. Here's what I hope um, Douglas and Lincoln would say. Don't go down that road. So I hope you enjoyed this look back in our history. My, my whole goal was to give you an idea of these two great Americans go through America's past, through their words, through their eyes. So when you are out there talking to people about America today, 1619, 1776, what you think about 600,000 dying in the Civil War, why statues are coming down, I could arm you with a little of the history to maybe lay the groundwork for you to go back and continue to dive into the remarkable life of Lincoln as well as Frederick Douglass, who, by the way, after he died, and remarkably, he advised seven presidents. When he died, he kind of disappeared for about 40 years. And then Philip Fawn brought him back. And since that time, more and more people are looking at his life and saying, this is one extraordinary man, as well as Abraham Lincoln, the most written about president in our rich history. Not perfect, came from nowhere, and ended up living off an infamy. Not bad. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. The President and Freedom Fighter can be found at BrianKilme.com. I can customize a personalized autograph for you. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.